In today's episode, I'm talking to Lola Jean. She's a sex educator, instructor, and coach. She's a pro dom. She's a wrestler, a writer, and an all-around pretty fucking rad person. She came into my life through Inca Winter, who was on the second episode of Share the Load last season. Inca had the very correct instinct that we would have a ton in common. Uh, Now we're talking about teaching a class together, we're talking about various collaborations even since this episode was recorded. We talk a lot in this episode about accountability across various aspects of our lives and our work and what it means to take accountability, to be held accountable, and what that process looks like. Lola had me on her podcast, which came out last week. The episode is called Is Our Love Consensual? You can hear that anywhere you get your podcasts. You're listening to Share the Load, a time to reflect on the division of labor within relationships. We talk about the ways that our identities shape and continue to define the work that we do and the work that's expected of us. I'm your host, Nia Schachter. I use she and they pronouns and I'm a bit gender nebulous, which is a term that I made up and you can use it if you like it. I'm an intimacy coordinator for TV and film based in Los Angeles and an embodied boundary guide for individuals and couples, which I do on Zoom. My interest in this work is mostly in consent, gender, and power dynamics. I offer Zoom classes live and for download through my website, and private sessions are there as well. You can follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at sharetheloadpod, and you can follow me on Instagram at Mia Schachter. My last name is spelled S-C-H-A-C-H-T-E-R. Today I'm talking to Lola Jean. She's a sex educator based in New York. Hey, Lola. Hello. How are you doing today? Not too bad. I mean, I told you I'm getting I'm getting foster kittens tonight, so I'm like kind of like waiting for Christmas morning a little bit over here. Oh, it's gonna be Christmas morning every morning. Every morning. <laughs> that is so, so exciting. I'm really like I'm like giddy for you. That's they're gonna be so little and cute. I know, I know. It's like scary. And I'm like, am I going to be a good mom? <laughs> you will. You will. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> they don't, they don't need that much attention. They really just need love and like food. Yeah, exactly. That's yeah. why I like cats better than dogs. <laughs> I know. I've got two sleeping on either side of me right now. And they're like, you know, in utter bliss. <laughs> I was reading this like, like little training for, cause they're like, they need to be socialized. And I was reading the training for cats and it was like, do not punish them. Don't scold them. The best thing you can do if you want to train them is don't pay any attention to them. And I'm like, I'm a kitten. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It works for humans too. Turns out. Right. <laughs> really good advice. I love that. That's going to make your life so much better. I'm really like truly excited for you. <laughs> okay. So I'm curious about your um, like formative memories around understanding what work looked like, what work means, where you saw it, how it kind of came into your awareness. Yeah. I mean, if I think of my, my formative years, I think especially there were like things that I had to like unravel and unpack of like stigma that was placed onto certain things. Mental health was something that was very hush hush. So if there were, you know, people in my family who had bipolar or they were depressed, it was like, oh, that's a bad thing. They have to get better. So already that was seen as something that was shameful. So when I was put into therapy, when I was in like third grade and put on medication, like I, it was like, something's wrong with me. Uh, even though like I, I was had like a bunch of severe bullying that like led to a lot of depression and anxiety. Um, it was like, I'm the problem. There's something wrong. I need to be fixed in that type of a sense. Yeah. And then, you know, and then you're like stained and, um, stigmatized when I, when I was a kid and I was, and I wanted to go to therapy, my parents were really resistant to it because they were afraid that then like insurance companies wouldn't insure me or like, I wouldn't get hired for a job because I would have been labeled as like mentally ill. Mm -hmm. I think that's a really pervasive 
thing that, you know, we all still have to like work to undo. I was going to say, and like the other thing too, that's, you know, I guess more major now as well is like, so I grew up in Baltimore and I, when I was like younger and I was saying I got bullied a lot. I mean, honestly, it was like third grade through college, but it was really bad in like maybe like third through seventh grade or something like that. And the people that were nice to me and my friends were all black girls. I was at all girls school and I was like, white girls are fucking mean. (laughs) Black girls are cool. And that's what my brain said. And like, there was this underlying like light racism. I feel like from my family and the world and I kind of got plucked out of one school into the other and that in my head I'm like oh I know I'll be friends with the black girls again because they're huh. nice to me and I like understand their culture because they were my friends for the past five years and kind of having that those undertones of racism that I that weren't outright at all it was like underlying but like having that kind of projected and not understanding it because like it was my friends and also I probably fucking culturally appropriate a bunch of things because <laughs> when you're younger you want to fit in with your friends totally um and that type of a thing but like if I look back on me now I was like oh darling <laughs> so like both of those things were kind of confusing of under understanding a lot of those pieces I think yeah yeah it's true there's like a lot of cultural appropriation that I think happens with kids that it's just you know you just you like mimic people that you like, like you want to be friends with them. And so you, you know, the, the ways into that when your kids are like the clothes you wear, the music you listen to the, you know, the, the media that you're yeah into. So, okay. So there's like two things that you just talked about yeah. that needed to be unlearned, I think. So let's yeah. start with the first one, which is like the stigma around mental illness. Yeah. How have you undone that for yourself, that negative stigma? Well, firstly, I have such a wonderful relationship with my therapist now. I like, I love her and I think she's so smart and just like so perfect. But starting that relationship with her, we needed to kind of undo the distrust that I had around therapy first. And then like kind of after that unveiling, like what was, it's so funny when you look at the big traumatic moment in your life when you're younger, because since your world's so small, the littlest thing can have this huge ripple effect. Cause like, it feels so stupid, but it was this betrayal by my parents who were like, I was, I'm having a horrible time. I'm being bullied. It's making me feel this way. And their solution was, we're putting you into therapy. You've been bad. And then there was, my mom was friends with one of the therapists she sent me to. And they would Mm. like, yeah. And like my, my therapist now was like, that's very unethical. Yeah. Um, and I was like, oh, okay. I, I kept feeling like I was the one in the wrong. So it was a lot to like heal that, forgive my parents, being able to talk to them like, hey, this thing you did wasn't cool. I know you didn't know better, but I had to heal that relationship and reestablish my trust in mm-hmm. therapy. And it's kind of that surrender I'm also in Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous, and I can't help but think of the parallels of the 12-step program within that too, of that, you know, you are powerless and then being able to build back up from there. So it was a lot through my current relationship with therapy and understanding mental health. And like now I work at a psychiatry practice too. So it's, it's everywhere and all around me, mm. as well too. but it was a lot of just like healing that, forgiving that and kind of just, yeah, finding my own relationship with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm seeing a lot of parallels in my own life, but I'm, <laughs> I want to keep this about you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, and then there was the undoing of like cultural appropriation and even like recognizing it as that. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I think like, I mean, I guess I would still consider myself like lucky or better end of like coming from, you know, middle to wealthy class white suburbia in Baltimore I could have been brought up in a fucking racist family and (laughs) there were a lot of people that the especially the ones that are mean to me that are probably just huge pricks now so I like I didn't have that viewpoint of it it was kind of everyone's everyone and whatever it may be so I didn't I didn't have like any kind of like inherent racism within that way. Um, But it was more of understanding. I mean, it's a lot of the people that I choose to surround myself around now who bring these things up to me and we can talk about it. Like one of my really good friends and like 
colleagues and partner in crime, like we were having a conversation about play parties or parties in general. And she was talking about how like, oh, there weren't like, there weren't a lot of black people in the room. And I was thinking that, oh, as an organizer, I'm just creating it for everyone. I don't even take that time to look and understand how do I get more black people in the room? Um, because she's black. So that's, she has to think about that every time she walks into a room. I don't inherently do that, which doesn't make it okay. So I think it's just people bringing more awareness. But like, I, I had like the starting like building blocks to that though in my youth. So it wasn't, that wasn't the hardest thing to traverse. I think it was more just trying to unpack both in terms of politics and race politics of my upbringing and family and things that like, hey, this wasn't okay. Yeah, you didn't know any better, but you can't do that anymore. And like my family has grown because of it too. Mm -hmm. Of like, you can't use words like that. You can't do that. (laughs) Right, right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. In terms of like, organizing events and spaces and things I think that like for us as white people when we think about making an event for everyone we're thinking about making it for white people we just don't know that that's what's going on in our brains Mm -hmm. and so what you're talking about is like bringing an awareness to the whiteness of my planning Mm -hmm. (laughs) right and like that I can't actually like in, in attempting to make something universally appealing, that mission alone is flawed. And it's not going to be universally appealing if only I am creating it because my idea of universally appealing is white. Yeah. And I mean, like in that respect too, I always like to say that, you know, try to get people, those people in the room. And if you can't get them in the room or they don't happen to be in the room, like, be able to like speak for them and represent them and learn from them as best you can to do that. So that just because they're not there, that their voice is going unheard. Mm-hmm. And it, cause I mean, it's a lot of times, like I think of, I was working on a thing called the good guy project. That's now beyond the bare minimum. And it was like post me to era. How do we get like men to understand? And like, we can't have women in the room at that point. Right. Um, like it's depending on what point people are at in that type of a sense. But yeah, a lot of that, you can't do it on your own. You need people to at least consult with and look over things and, and call you out and call you in um, and review things with you. It's, it's hard to do things in an echo chamber. Right. And we have to pay them. Mm-hmm. We have to pay them for their labor. Mm-hmm. And I would like say payment can be accepted in multiple formats. So some people Absolutely. value money as payment. Some people value promotion as payment. Some people value like get me clients as payment. Like there's all there's all different types of formats and we all value that in different ways. I think sometimes we forget because we just think of money as value because we're in a capitalist society. Yeah, totally. Right. I mean, the, the exchange has to be like discussed ahead of time Mm -hmm. but the exchange can be whatever the other person feels is making it worth their time and effort and energy yeah Yeah, exactly um so can you talk a little bit about um the work that you do now yeah it um (laughs) it keeps changing it keeps adding more beautiful partnerships or things come up that are good ideas but I find that like while my work started out very sexual at first, the more I get into it, the less sexual it gets because it's how do I get down that like Maslow hierarchy of needs, fix people at their core or help them grow on their own to something that's sustainable. And that just comes down to how do you be a good human? How do you understand these things? So a lot of I feel like educators or influencers tell people what you want, know your boundaries, explain your desires. And it's like, some people don't even, they either, they don't know what it is or they've been, they're, they're stuck in the socialization where they think they know what it is, but they, they haven't unpacked themselves. So it's like, how do I, how do I speak to those people? How do I get them in this process when they're not even ready for me yet? How do I reach them? Yeah. When they don't know that they need you. Yeah. Exactly. So it, I mean, there's still certain practical courses that get people in. So the squirting, the intro to squirting, the intro to pegging, um, dirty talk and audio erotica and things like that. And then also kind of bridging the gap and and normalizing sex work. But now it's becoming also sexual harassment education, Mm -hmm. confidence building courses, 
and and then still certain things where you, know, you get into domination, but all of that still, it, everything's based in psychology. Um, my biggest thing is giving people options uh, and that like, you don't have to like everything I do. You don't have to agree with everything I do at all. And I'm not saying it's the only way, but it's a way. Right. Yeah, our work is so aligned. It's really amazing that Inca put us in touch because mm -hmm. I also have like a confidence building practice with private yeah. clients. And that's like something that I talk about so much in, in the classes that I teach. And then I also have been like really mindful lately to reiterate that I'm in this practice as well. I'm, you know, I'm finding my way and I falter and I am insecure. And I think that there's like ways to, you know, the more confidence you have, it doesn't mean that you feel less insecure necessarily. I think you just can start to notice when you're feeling insecure, understand why, also understand like the systems in place that are designed to keep you insecure because you will then, if you're insecure enough, you will spend money on stuff to buy confidence or the appearance of confidence. Um, mm -hmm. But that I am also in this practice, you know, and I'm, I'm going through it as well, but that the confidence is really the only way to like show up ethically to like show up in a way that we want to be in the world because the confidence allows us to listen to other people to hold their views even when they're not congruent with ours you know to have to not get defensive to not get jealous to not get judgmental like all those things require confidence and a healthy relationship to our egos but also what you were saying about like it used to be more about sex like I'm finding the same thing in my work I feel like so much of my work was for so many years was, was circling around sex. Like it was all about sex and sexuality and relationships and stuff. And now it has become so much more, it has kind of like fractaled into consent, boundaries, confidence, power dynamics. Mm -hmm. um, and all that stuff is, is way more interesting to me than like just sex at large. Cause I think that those things make sex better and sex kind of becomes secondary to the communication around intimacy and love and like how we get to know ourselves. Um, so it's, inter it's, it's just interesting to me that you're like yeah. having a similar experience where like you're clearly dealing with sex, but your work is actually about these other things. Yeah. And it's like sex is the symptom. Sex also what it sells. That's right. what people come in being like, I want to know how to squirt. And it's like, oh, it sounds like you actually want this mm. thing. Um, so it's like, it's the symptom. So you have to have that to like draw into the funnel. But like, that's not actually the thing that needs to be fixed. But I'm actually yeah. curious in what you were, this kind of clicked for me. And I'm curious because this is a lot of the work that you yeah. do. But like, do you think that confidence is like intrinsic and incredibly linked to consent? Yes. Because I couldn't help it. Yes. 100%. I, and I've said yeah. that before and kind of like, I'm so glad that you said that because it kind of just brought it back into the forefront of my mind. Like it's something yeah. that I almost feel like I dropped a little bit, but yes, I think that consent requires confidence. And I mean, yeah. to, to be able to say to someone like, Hey, I don't like being choked, for example, like, that takes so much confidence because first of all, you have to know that you don't like being choked and you have to like know that mm -hmm. enough to not even care if they want to choke you because what's more important is yeah. your desire not to be choked. And I'm kind of like on the other side of it. I'm like, and then it takes confidence for someone to say, I don't like to be choked and you to be like, okay, that's cool. Right. Yeah. And it doesn't hurt cool. your ego. Thank you for letting me know. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. There's, it takes so much confidence to to receive a boundary as not rejection and as not like right. a threat to like, you know, your entire being. It's the same with feedback, though. Like I teach this anti-racism, this consent and boundaries for the revolution for white people class. It's a solidarity course with camera Hakeem's activation group. And and we talk a lot about confidence when it comes to taking feedback, like for someone to say, like, I really you know, this thing that you said, I really didn't like it. And you to be like, wow, thank you for letting me know is mm -hmm. so much more grounded. And, and not just like, it doesn't just show confidence. It actually makes you feel more confident than letting yourself go mm -hmm. into that. Like, Oh fuck. Like, Oh no, they're going to tell so-and-so what do I do? I have to fix this. I'm so sorry. Please for like that, that drudges up 
your insecurity. And I think it's, I think Mm -hmm. it's really parallel to like stuff in bed. Like, Hey, I don't, I don't like, you know, the way that you're like licking me or whatever. And for someone to be like, cool, that's like really good, useful information. Yeah. Or like, okay, I don't need to do that. We don't have to do that. And then it like that then opens it up to they're like, oh, okay, I can say things and they respect right. them versus if it like, if it hurt my feelings, then like that's going to discourage them from saying it. Oh, like yeah. That. I mean, the, the amount of like, when someone has such an overblown self-involved reaction to me stating a boundary, it's so much harder for me to state a boundary in the future because I then feel this pressure, like not to bring it up unless it would warrant that extreme level of reaction. And I don't want that extreme level of reaction. Yeah. It's like life hack early on in your dating process. What happens when you say no, or you don't like something? How do they react? I've oh, yeah. been able to weed out so many people from completely, that. Completely. And like my current partner, I think I like, I like shut something down early and he was just like, Okay. Mm-hmm. I was like, huh? Oh, oh. <laughs> yeah. The way that someone takes a no is like so much information in there. It's really, yeah. it's, it's so helpful. Like that filter alone is so mm-hmm. helpful. Yeah. Wow. Okay. I'm curious about this word helping and, um, and how it, of course, how it ties into labor because I just, had something happen yesterday where like I was not exactly misquoted but a journalist condensed something that I said in a way that made it mm-hmm. sound like my job is to help people and that I yeah. and that that's why I do it it raised some flags for me for a number of reasons the first reason was that it was a story about working with two black actors and so then the story about the two black actors was that so the director was white and she called out a direction for the for the male actor to run his fingers through the female actor's hair and you know my radar was like no <laughs> like don't do that and he you know i saw his wheels turning and so he was like trying to communicate to the director that he heard the direction while also like knowing that he absolutely should not do that to this woman. And so what he did was just kind of like cupped his hand and like patted her head. (laughs) And it was like, it was just so unsexy. Like it was not, you know, it was not what the director wanted, obviously. It was not Mm -hmm. anything naturally that he would have done. And it was like in no way an indicator that this couple was like, intimate or like you know loved each other so at the time I kind of thought like I don't know if this is really in my purview as like this position as an intimacy coordinator and you know like I'm not I'm not like an anti-racism coordinator like where is this line and is this under my umbrella and like why and how do I address it so you know later later I understood that's not how this couple would have expressed intimacy to each other. So yes, it is within the scope of my job. And I, and I should have said something and I wish that I had. But so I relayed this to a, a journalist and the way that it got like condensed made it sound like, first of all, did not tell the story of what I just told you. And then mm-hmm. also like... Um, the follow-up sentence was some quote quoting me saying, uh, I wasn't sure if this was something that was like within the scope of my job, but I realized that it definitely is something for me to help them with or something, or like, I definitely should have helped them or something. And it Mm -hmm. just, it raised my like white savior flags and like, and I just was kind of like, I don't think that this is like what I meant, you know? And then, but, but the, the other part of that issue is that like my job is kind of interpreted as this like unwanted help. Like if you look at the wheel of consent, it's like non-consensual service is kind of like Mm -hmm. the way that my job is interpreted because people are like, we didn't ask for you. We don't want you here. We don't need you. You're being like forced on us by the network. And that has only happened 
I don't know, like on one show, maybe two where, where someone hires me and then someone else is like, I don't really know what you're doing here. Like, I don't need you. And, Mm -hmm. and it feels like this, like forced service is being forced on them. Right. So I'm like really, really sensitive to that word. I want to help people. Yeah. Yeah. So that was like a really long winded way to ask you about your own thoughts on that and how it relates to the work that you do. And then even another question around like the marketing aspect. Yeah. So, I mean, in general, I see my work as more of like harm reduction Mm -hmm. um, is that I want people to stop hurting each other. So like by way of not hurting each other, then maybe I'm helping them um, or not having themselves be able to speak for themselves. So they're not hurt. Like, I don't want people to go through a lot of the shit that I've gone through. We try to be the person that we would have wanted for ourselves. But I think with that, it's just trying to give people the best tools that I can in that way. Um, And I'm often like, I'm, I always tell people that I know a lot of stuff. I don't know everything, but I'm also still learning. And I always am. And like, you will be too. You'll never, you're, nothing's ever enough. You're never going to do enough. Um, there's always going to be more and there's always going to be more to learn. So don't think that that's why it's beyond the bare minimum. You don't want to do the bare minimum. Um, you want to be able to keep building on that knowledge base. I wanted to tell you all about a podcast that I've been listening to called Wholehearted. Every episode is different, but Hannah, the host, has such a clear voice and point of view that the show always feels like itself, no matter what the topic is. I particularly love the Nick and Hannah episode because it really speaks to my love of unrequited love stories. (laughs) Wholehearted is available wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, I was having a conversation with a colleague yesterday about, you know, we're, we're teaching a cohort of, of intimacy coordinators. Um, and they're like almost all people of color. We were offered this like racial healing Mm -hmm. support from this, these, um, like intergenerational trauma, uh, racial healing in terms of like for for white practitioners. So it's like for white facilitators. So it's like support for us, but it's also to help us make sure that we're not perpetuating harm. And you know, it's like a chunk of money and we're all like underemployed right now. So we were talking about it and he was like, well, are you sure that, that we're like perpetuating harm? And I was like, a hundred percent, I am 100% certain that we are. And it was kind of this like, oh no, like, what do you mean? What have we done kind of thing? And I was like, Mm -hmm. I was like, we're, we're white, like we're perpetuating harm and we don't know that we're doing it. We don't know when we're doing it. Like that is how, you know, in like a platonic sense, white supremacy works to its own, to achieve its own goals. Like it is that sinister and it is, it is in us and it will always be in us. And it's something that we need to commit for our life, like lifelong to, to fighting and interrogating so that we're getting closer to never doing it, but we will always be doing it. We always will. And you also said you were talking about harm reduction. There's another word that like, I think because with everything, like so many words that like catch on that just become diluted and they don't mean anything anymore. Like even like the word abuse is like, it's so subjective from person to person, like a blanket catch-all can still mean so many different things. I think with like harm reduction, a word I recently learned is omnipartiality, which is how can you do the greatest amount of good for the greatest amount of people? And it's like, you know, your, your ancestors for you, for me, for the people, for the next generation. So thinking about in that term, it kind of makes it a more, because I think we can also look at harm reduction and be like, well, I'm trying to silence your voice so you don't harm anyone else. And also still kind of feels like you're trying to get like a punishment as well. It's not a repair kind Mm, of a situation. mm -hmm. But I think one of the important things of whether it's omnipartiality, whether it's harm reduction, it it has to do with like power dynamics and the system of validation. So I don't, I don't get my validation from my fans or my followers or the people that I help necessarily. I mean, it's great. It feels good. I'm glad to know that I've made a difference in people's lives, but it's more that like when I create work or or programs or classes or events, it's because it's like people are doing this 
They need something to help them not do that or to think a certain way. This seems to be an issue. What can we do to bring that to light and talk about it and try to solve it in a different way that's not just like, come to my talk and let me tell you how to act. So a lot of it's in response to that. Like I'm my own worst critic at the end of the day. It's my opinion and it's my peers' opinion that matters most to me. When my colleague Tiana and myself like hold conferences, we care more about the opinions of our different speakers that we've hired than we do the people attending. Mm. So we want to hold ourselves to a higher standard because the thing is that like our, our followers, our fans, our consumers, just because they like something and they had a good time doesn't mean you did a good job, doesn't mean you did well or you did right. People like a lot of things uh, and it's like, well, they liked it, so it's good, but is it is it right? Is it up to your moral and ethic code? If you start doing things for the validation of others, that's not something that's sustainable. It's not a power that's sustainable. It's not a validation system that's sustainable. Um, so I don't, it, it's not really actually to help other people. It's to help solve problems and get people to have different conversations in different ways. I don't want to guide the conversation to be very specific and rigid. You, I have to guide it to what happens in a certain space. So when we were holding pop-up porn cinemas, it's like, how do we help people have conversations around porn? How do we help reduce that stigma and get people talking about it? It's not like what's good porn and what's bad porn because that's subjective and there's so many factors that are important to different people. But it's like, how do we expose people to more porn than the algorithm is? Right. And how do we get them to talk about it? And um, so like, that was the problem. It's in my own good advertising. Frame. Yeah, well, but it's also like, how do you then create critical consumers? Like, I think that that's a mm. big part of it as well. Um, and part of that, I think, is like understanding the systems. I mean, we just, we were talking about this, like understanding the systems that lead you to your desires and then like being willing to unpack your own desires because you want to make sure that you know where they're coming from and why they're there. Um, I was on a mm -hmm. porn set yesterday. It was a trans scene and uh, it was, it was really cool to witness like the consent conversation that happened. It was, there was a lot of room for improvement. I thought, you know, just in terms of like getting really specific the moment, the moments that stood out to me were the moments that I knew were going to get cut from the scene. Like mm -hmm. the amount of time that the, that the guy in the scene was um, like jerking off before he came, right? Like they're going to cut that down to like a brief couple seconds because there was a whole conversation that was like, you know, how, how do you um, like, what position do you need to be in to come? And like, you know, who wants to come first and like how, you know, what's going to be easiest for you. And then there was a whole conversation around choking, like that is all getting cut. And so the person consuming that scene is going to be like, oh, you can just choke someone whenever you feel like it, you know, like, because yeah. what they're not seeing is like, it actually takes prep. Um, they also like, it was an anal penetration scene. So what you don't see is like the 10 minutes that we took to like loosen up her asshole, you know, like you don't see that. You don't see that. You don't see the conversation. You don't see the compassion that's take, that it takes to like get her to that place and the, the connection that the two people in the scene have and like the trust that they have, you know, because the scene was like a step sibling scene. And, and it was just like, they just fucking go for it. And, and what you miss out on is like all of the intimacy and all of the care and all of the preparation and all of the consent, like all of that just gets edited out. So if you're being a, um, a critical consumer, you're going to watch that and be like, right. Okay. So like, I can't just like go for someone's throat or go for someone's asshole. Um, <laughs> just because that's what I'm seeing in the, in these videos, like, what mm -hmm. you need to do is then still have conversations with your, with the partners that you're sleeping with to ask what they need. And I was just sort of yeah. daydreaming on this set of like the porn that I would want to make where like, you just leave all those conversations in. <laughs> <laughs> and some people do. Yeah. You know, and it's also, it's, it's a shame because it's like, you're like, I want that and it exists, but like a lot of people either don't know that it exists or again, it's like, if you use it for education and not 
entertainment. Um, yeah. It's fine to be like, oh, that's how it can look like. But yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of things, even just of how serious it usually is. I like laughing when there's yeah. laughter in porn. I like laughing in my sex. And like, it took my partner a little while because he computes laughing differently. And I'm like, no, I need to do yeah, this. Yeah, like I'm not laughing at you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But it's like, usually laughter means joy. Right. And so it's a good thing. Right. Yeah, you know, there was like, there was a moment on this set where like, we got the lube out and like, of course that's getting cut. You know, it was fascinating to be there. I was really, I'm teaching these classes with the free speech coalition for performers and directors. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to go, I was invited to like observe on this set. Everyone was so nice. Like I, I really was like sitting there being like, can I pivot to this world and like make this Mm -hmm. my career? But I also just was kind of like, okay, you know, what kind of porn would I want to make? And the the porn that I want to see is more energetic. Are you familiar with the blueprints, the sexual blueprints? Erotic the erotic blueprints, blueprints yeah. yeah. I'm familiar. I just like, I don't like subscribing to a lot of Yeah, them. I don't really like <laughs> quizzes that like tell me who yeah. I am. But I did take the quiz and I'm an energetic predominantly and it, it like made a lot of sense. And, and I was like, you know, thinking about it on the set yesterday and I was like, oh yeah, like the moments that really turn me on are like the moments where they are building tension and not necessarily, and actually like as soon as they were actually fucking each other, I was like, okay, like now I'm at work, you know, like now, now this yeah. is like I'm a pro and I'm like watching this on the screen and I'm like, okay, like where's the best angle and like how to, you know, blah, blah, blah. But the moments where I was like, well, I'm going to like think about this later were like right as they were about to kiss. And then the like the cute little sounds that they made while they were making out. Like those are the things mm-hmm. that I'm like, oh, that really gets to me. <laughs> it could just be because we're touch deprived too, though. So oh you know. my God. I mean, the touch deprivation <laughs> is really excruciating. I've been doing like love spells and rituals and stuff to try to bring some of that into my life. It's been, I've had a dearth of any and all affection and intimacy. And now I live alone. Like I was living with my parents for a while and they had like very strict rules around COVID and I totally respect their rules and was very, very diligent and careful. And I'm still being very diligent and careful, but like if I were dating someone and we were like, let's go get tested so that we feel comfortable touching, I would be comfortable Mm -hmm. with that. Whereas like my parents were just kind of like, no, that's like not safe for us. And so now I live alone, which of course is like lonelier in a certain way, but also very liberating and in, in all these other ways. So mm-hmm. I'm, I am like ready for some of that energy in my life. And I, I do believe that there's like safe, sustainable ways to do it. I mean, speaking of harm reduction, like I feel like that's been a huge issue in the way that we've been fed like media around this virus is like from a public health policy standpoint, it's all about abstinence. And we have not been talking a lot about yeah. harm reduction. I treat it like STI tests. Like, you know, how many people have I been in contact yeah. with? How, when do I, and like, when I get tested, what's the information that I know? I've been looking at the antibody scores of how they go down of like, okay, what's my risk assumption? Because we all assume risk every day yeah. in our lives all the time. If you've ever given more an oral sex without a condom or a dental, dental dam, you assumed risk. Yeah. I've contracted gonorrhea from mouth to mouth. It can yeah. happen. So we all assume these risks all the time. So it's like, okay, I'm going into an outdoor location where everyone's wearing a mask. That's a very low very risk low situation risk, yeah. for contraction. Then even if I was going indoors with three people, that's a bit higher risk. Totally. Um, so it, it's assessing that all the time and getting tested and just like knowing your status. Yeah, I completely agree. And I feel like that that is the way to harm reduction and sustainability because abstinence doesn't work. And what we're seeing is that people, mm-hmm. because we've been told to be abstinent we like people are rebelling and they're just saying fuck it and I get it like from a public policy standpoint you can't say like hey be smart about this here's the information because for the most part people are going to take you know take a mile when they're given an inch I don't I don't know if that's for the most part necessarily but like that is the risk um Mm -hmm. when you're like making policy for an entire, you know, city, county, state, whatever. So I, I get it in that sense, but on a person to person level, like, I think we need to be conscientious, critical consumers of media and conscientious, critical 
people in the world so that we are mitigating our risk because eliminating the risk is not possible. And, and on top of that is that I think by being these like conscious and critical consumers, it doesn't mean like shooting the chef at the same time. It's like, how do we omnipartiality? How do we figure out how to create the greatest amount of good for the greatest amount of people? And instead of being like, this sucks, kill it, this sucks, kill it. Like, so this probably foreshadows what we're going to talk about, but um, Disclosure, the documentary on Netflix Mm. that's about trans representation in media, it's so fucking well done. And I think it's, you can put anything within there. You can say Black representation in media, women representation in media, gay representation in media, any of those things, um, and be able to see that. But, like, they show people who fucked up and grew over time. Like, Oprah didn't handle language of trans folks well, and now she does. Right, Katie Kirk. Yeah, like, and it's, I think, like, it's really important that, like, people are capable of growth and change, even when they royally fuck up. Yeah. Um, and, you know, where I have so much opinions about cancel and call culture, and I think they have a place, I don't think we're always using them correctly, but it's, I mean, and that's, that's the kind of labor I'm so fucking down to do that so many people aren't. Everyone's, like, too much emotional labor. I'm yeah. like, I have privilege and that puts me in a place where I can give a lot of labor to. And I'm, I'm totally down to do that. And it's being able to like sit with people and like receive them and being able to provide them a care instead of necessarily an accusation in that way. And allowing them the space to grow. I mean, I think this brings me back to this point that you made about, or I don't know if you actually intended to make this point, but you were talking Mm -hmm. about, we were talking about confidence and then you said something about I don't know. And like, I think that saying I don't know is like, takes so much confidence because we want people to think that we know what we're talking about. And like, we want them to think that we're smart and that we're experts in what we do. And it actually takes, like, it seems like it would make you feel insecure, but I think that there is a lot of confidence to be found in sharing with people that you're uncertain or that you need to do more research or that you are working on something right like work yeah or that you're like I know my shit don't worry about it yes also like all the different yeah (laughs) yeah that is also important we need to be able to like believe that we know what we're doing in order to like sell what we're doing I I think it's like people in whether you're on a pedestal you're a public figure you have a following can people find this need where if someone asks me a question, I have to answer mm-hmm. it. Um, and I have to answer it and be correct. And that's how so much misinformation is spread. Right. Everyone wants to feel important. And when you get someone that says, oh, thanks, I love this. It really helped me. You're like, oh, I did a good job, even though you might be spreading misinformation because right. you're like, oh, I made someone else feel good. And that's how this whole cycle continues in that way. So it's part of it is that if there's something someone asks you and you're like, here's my best guess, I'm not sure, Or like I tell people, like, I don't have a degree in sexuality or sex ed, but I'm really fucking good at my job. Mm -hmm. And also those degrees are pretty bullshit and we don't know a lot about things anyway. Like case in point, I've broken science before. Like so many things have been disproven. Also science and research is run by white Mm -hmm. men. Um, And it just, it all sucks. So yeah, (laughs) like pretty much. Um, But within those, it's like, yeah, there's things that I'm like, I know my shit on this and yes. And then other things that I don't. And yeah, I think people respect me more when I've been teaching a pegging class and someone asked me about rimming and I'm like, here's what I think, but honestly, I'm not an expert on this and I don't feel like I have the authority to speak Mm -hmm. on it. Yeah. I mean, I, I find that so much more admirable than someone trying to like Mm -hmm. bullshit an answer and like demonstrate to me that they are the, you know, superior mind on a topic also like Mm -hmm. asking for help, you know, also like turning down work takes a lot of confidence being like, you know what, I'm actually not the most qualified person for this job, but I could like refer you to somebody who would be excellent. Yeah. 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 I'm interested in this idea of like all of these, all of these forms of, yeah, I'm interested in this idea of like the, the critical thought that goes into, um, being a critical consumer or, um, or a conscientious, you know, person in the world around like health and safety as like, as a form of labor that we can do, but also as a form of labor that we can teach people to do. Like we can actually give people tools and skills to be critical of the media. I mean, oh my God. And like other countries are so much, much better at this than the U S I travel a lot 
for my job and I'm able to teach different different cultures. I love teaching in the UK. I love teaching in Germany. And I'm just like, oh my God, y'all are, they are so much better consumers. Mm. Their Germans are so critical and it's great. It's amazing. And like, I want to teach people to do that because it also just, it makes it easier to teach and have conversations right. when people are critical in that way. Because if someone is critical and you know your shit or you're confident that you don't know your shit, then you can have a conversation with them. Whereas when you're trying to pretend like I always like telling people like question your educators yeah like ask them like where did you get this information from where did you learn this um what do you think about this like they have a leg to stand on and the best ones do or the best ones will be like here's what I think but I don't know this here's where you can get more research from um this is only based off my experience like those people versus like oh it's only based off this one research study with 10 people or whatever that may be yeah but that's the first step is just like questioning people or like, how did you come up with this? Um, have you thought about the alternate side? Do you think this is the only way? Right. Is this based on your experience? Is this based on something that you read? Where, yeah, where is this information coming from? And as we, of course, like encourage people in our lives or our students or our clients or whatever to be more critical, we also have to model being able to take criticism, which I think requires mm-hmm. a whole lot of confidence. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And like being able, I think it's also like, I'm really, I think so much about um, performative allyship and white fragility and how those cycle from within each other. Cause everyone wants to be like, this is like from when me and my parents were trying to reconcile with my career. And like, I had an intervention from them. We went to group therapy and then they were like, okay, we're better now. And it's like, Mm. no, No. (laughs) that's not how it works. You have to work to accept me and like what I do in my job. And like, now they've done that because I put them in a timeout. (laughs) But like, I think that that's how the world is. If they want to be like, we're anti-racist now. Um, we're good here. Let me tell you all the different ways. Let me signal boost this. And it's just not that reality. Like, I don't, I don't call myself an ally. Cause like, it doesn't matter. I either do the work or I don't, I don't need people to recognize it. I don't care. Um, and I think a lot of people are just hiding behind that. Cause they don't want to appear in the wrong. They don't want to be bad. They want to be the good guy yeah. um, or the good person. And they can't possibly fuck up. And the danger of that is for those people who can't take that criticism, when that happens, they're less likely to acknowledge that they caused harm, that they fucked up, and that can damage people worse than the thing you did in the oh, first yeah, place. yeah, for sure. Yeah, the word ally, I feel like, needs to go. It needs to be retired. Yeah. It's not, it yeah. I mean, it is all, all these words. Yeah. It, it yeah. has always been a word that I felt like I didn't want to use like self-referentially it always seemed like something that someone else should be calling other people you know like I shouldn't be like I'm an ally um but but now it's just gotten so diluted that it really needs to go I think that's the unfortunate thing with all of these different things that start out great is they do get diluted. Like a reference I use that is like the word organic yes, used to mean something. I know. And now it's just like a descriptor for everything. Yeah. I mean, I watched the word organic, like that trajectory. And then the word gluten-free also took the same trajectory yeah. where like now, you yeah. know, there's like things at the grocery store, like this banana is gluten-free or like this sugar is like says gluten-free on it. I mean, I'm making up the banana one, but the sugar (laughs) one is real. Like you buy like a box of sugar and it's like gluten-free. And I'm like, what the fuck do you think sugar is made out of? There's one ingredient in sugar. (laughs) It's sugar. It's cane sugar. Like that's what it is. It's, it's marketable. Like marketers grab onto a word like that, use it. Feminism. The same thing happened with feminism. The same thing happened with the color pink. The word ethical. Yeah. Fair trade. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, you stamp these words on things and people are like, ooh, I'll pay more for that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm also happy to talk about like, this is something that's like fresh now, but I'm going through an accountability process. Ooh. So like one of the conferences that I held with my business partner, this was like right after George Floyd got murdered, but it's something we've been planning for a while, but it was a conference on desire. And we hired a colleague of ours to do a talk about race play or like what happens when your desires conflict with morality, Mm. because we had like a psychologist on who does like studies on, on fantasy and desire. That's like, when you try to ignore the thing, instead of unpacking it, it compounds. 
and it just becomes more pervasive um, because it's not to say like all of your fantasies aren't necessarily valid um, or are a virtue. You have to unpack like why does this exist? Right. So kind of like when you're saying abstinence isn't it's it's not working. Uh, you can't be like don't do race play anymore. People people are going to still going to want to do that, so they have to be able to unpack it and like. It's not to say that every time is wrong, but not every time is right either. And you have to unpack it and with that other person to do that work. So we didn't want people to be thinking that, okay, just because you checked off the boxes and both of you consented to it means this is okay because there's there's so many more repercussions with that. But anyway, we held that talk at a time where it was very fresh and we like to have these difficult conversations and you know challenge people to think about it. But it was something where we got called out afterwards for um, having an event where race play was discussed very fresh into this racial injustice uprising. And that's something that like we've taken that very seriously. We've taken time to use our accountability pods, which both for this and COVID has really just made that more prevalent and evidence to me of like how important that is where like I was saying I don't get my validation from other people especially I have like a core group of people whose opinion matters to me who will be critical of me and they'll call me out but they also want to like they support my growth so like they have investment in me but they're also not like yes man or yes women or yes people um so that's something that like my business partner and I have been going through of like okay how do we learn from this what do we put in place what are different precautions we can take? What are things that we can do? How do we like provide this to the community? And then also both of us are like, and if people have lost our trust in us, if they don't like the fact that we have this, like you don't have to stay with us. Like that's the beauty of consent too. It's like, we understand like what we did. We understand, um, you know, and it's hard too, because it's it, a lot of it is like within the call out, it's hard to address it without buying into every other accusation they've made, which might not necessarily be accurate. Um, but that's something that's been, it's been hard. It's been a struggle, um, especially as someone who talked about cancel and call culture well before that. Um, it's hard, like when that happens, of feeling like, am I a bad person? Did I go through this? I'm trying to do this good and I caused this harm. What does that make of me? Um, like, and then feeling guilty. Cause I'm just like, I don't even fucking matter in this. I'm a white person. Like, not, like I don't have any right to even feel sad or feel upset. Um, so it's like cycling through all that. Like it's, I'm going through this whole process too. And I'm like more than happy to be open about it. Um, but it, it's, it's really hard right now. And I think it's the hard with like an election upcoming is people are not willing to have difficult conversations, which is like kind of what my whole job's about. It's a difficult conversation with sex, it's a difficult, difficult conversation with race. It's a difficult conversation with consent, with family, um, with any of those things. But in order to understand what's right and wrong or what's ethical or not, or what's fair trade and gluten free, mm -hmm. like we have to have, these conversations and we have to be able to sit in discomfort and sit in the difficult and know when we have to remove ourselves from that discomfort, but we have to be able to sit in it too. Is there, is the ask though that you just don't talk about race play? So the tricky thing was that the way that this was made out was that I was the one who taught the, like a race play class, mm -hmm. which like I, I hired someone who talks about this, who is a person of color, who is a black person who like, this is her life's work. Um, and like my co-organizer is a black person too. Like this is a thing that's been discussed for a while. I think the ask is more just that we caused harm by also we didn't put enough warning surrounding it. It was known that that was going to be a talk that was happening. We could have done a lot more build up to it. We could have placed a lot more outs for people. We could have hired an emotional support person. We could hire someone who's trained in anti-racism to consult with beforehand. Mm -hmm. Like there's plenty of things that we could have done to not trigger people as much or not like, or to reduce harm in that way. I think it's unfair to say like, don't talk about race anymore because that's all we're doing right now. And we should be, we should, yeah. we should continue to, I feel like I'm actually not talking about race enough. I feel guilty when I do a sex class now. It's like this, that's not important right. in the right. world as much right now. I should be doing other things. Um, it's just, how do we go about it in a better way? I still think this is an important conversation. I think we could have framed it differently. Mm -hmm. I think we could have led with an apology 
Um, I feel bad that we didn't do that. Um, you know, but there, there's plenty of coulda, woulda, shouldas, but it's that like, we're learning from this. Um, and people don't have to forgive us, but I think it's also about wanting to be transparent with like, here's what happened. Here's what we're doing. We're not trying to hide from anything. We don't need you to think we're good people. We're just going to try our best for us. Mm -hmm. Um, and then hopefully we like, you know, cause it's, if one person spoke up about being harmed, there was probably other right. people that maybe felt similarly or didn't feel good. So it's, it's learning from that and what we can do, but then also, I think it's also creating these like murky waters where it was, you know, set as a race play class, which it wasn't, and it wasn't a class. It was a talk, mm -hmm. um, like an academic talk. So how do we then also clarify that? Because if you went into this thinking that me, a white person held a race play class, like a week after George Floyd was <laughs> murdered, yeah, I'd fucking cancel me too. <laughs> yeah. um, but hands down. Um, but that's not what happened, but also it doesn't make it right. Yeah. There's still, there's still areas where we fucked up. Um, and I think it's, a, it's important that process of learning from it um, as well too. And that's why it's also, these details are important. Right. Um, I think it's like, yes, we believe survivors, but you can still believe survivors and then look to understand things more. If someone's like, this person abused me and I can say, okay, what, what was the abuse? Um, because them like firing them for not doing work is going to be different from them physically abusing them is going to be different from them using their race or ethnicity or gender or sexual identity against them. Like there's, there's all these different layers of it too, but regardless of it, I mean, I have a whole class on or a talk on cancel culture. Cause there's so many layers of it. Cause there are times it's appropriate. I just think we're jumping to it too quickly without giving room and giving people the option to show up in that difficult conversation. And like the let, the more we avoid that, oh, it's just, it's not going to be, I just really wish we could. It's just not going to be good. We can't keep avoiding those things just because they're uncomfortable, like rejection we, and criticism. We can't keep avoiding yeah. it. Yeah, I know. We just have to get, we have to build our capacity to take it. Yeah. And like, it's, you breathe and you're like, will you survive this? Yeah. I've like rejected someone before and you could tell he was ejected. And I was like, and you'll survive and you're going to be okay. Yeah. And it just takes that moment. And you're like, oh, yeah. right. Like, like I still breathe oxygen. I still, yeah. Well, I'd like to ask you about your influences at this point. Yeah. Where do you see like three most formative things in your life and whether that's a person or a job or an experience or a book or yeah yeah okay so I'm like I think like, there's so much there's so many I know things, then there's always something where I'm like that blew my mind or I'm always meeting new people where I'm like oh my god your perspective that's amazing and I involve it in my work um but one of the first things that kind of really like on my start of my sex ed career was Michael Foucault's um, uh, study on the desire and pleasure. Mm -hmm. And it was the question that he asked is why do we see ourselves as um, objects of desire and not agents of pleasure? Mm -hmm. And this really stuck with me because I think it's just such a beautiful way of describing, I think especially what people socialize as women feel, but probably in general is that a lot of us, we think we're getting our pleasure from like, I'm being desired. I'm an object versus actually experiencing pleasure. And we, we convolute those. And it doesn't mean that, you know, being desired isn't fun, but it, it gets away from pleasure in that way. It creates a lot of this like feedback loop of who's actually getting pleasure at the end of the day, if we're all just like liking the desire and that going around and around. It's, it's the same thing kind of with like the compliments. Mm. Um, it's like, are you getting complimented or are you doing good work? Yeah because it's not the same thing. Right. I love that. So that was one where like, I still consider that like a big foundation of my work. I think, I mean, philosophers are great, right? Because they just pose questions a lot of the time. They try to, you know, be able to explain those. But at the end of the day, philosophers are posing these questions that should make us ponder and thought right. and question ourselves um, and everything in that nature. I think one, I mean, one of the big formative experiences within my life that like switched things was when I met an individual who was like the first person I felt like that accepted me for body and mind for sluttiness and for who I was and like all of these pieces and it was amazing and gorgeous and wonderful and then he broke off with me right after we had sex oh. which was like I remember I was just like 
could you not do it right now? Mm. This is like, this won't be therapy, but it's also like having to get over that, forgive that. I've since been able to like talk with him and really heal through that and let him heal through his shit as well too. But it's like, that was really tough and difficult, but it also like gave me a lot to work with. It, it, I was back on my own again and it wasn't relying through another person to explore these things. And it really just kind of gave me a kick in the butt because I romanticized relationships. And I was like, I'm not going to keep waiting around for this thing that society told me I'm supposed to like screw this mm-hmm. shit. Um, so that, I mean, it was definitely a big turning point um, in my life in both my career, my sexuality, um, really just everything. So I ultimately have to thank him mm-hmm. for that. And I guess I also have to thank him because he made me realize I was a squirter and like, cool. now that's kind of what I'm known for. Mm-hmm. So thank you to Snackwell. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, and then I'm trying to think of like, there's so many different pieces of media that stir thought and make me think. And like the one of late is, is disclosure is that documentary mm-hmm. on Netflix. And I think, I think within media, we're doing such a better job of questioning things, of like funding small filmmakers, of letting things be seen. And the role of media is so important in everything. And for for everything really. And I think what that film does a great job of too, of not only just being made, um, having it be revolutionary that that was made and accessible, but of of the story that it tells um, and of the importance and the role of media. And again, it's about trans representation media, but you can insert anything into that and it's still the same thing. And I think a lot of the time when it's like, yeah, it's, it's, edu- it's entertainment, it's not education, but it still has an impact and it still is important. And it's not that everything has to be tied in a nice bow and it has to all be like following guidelines and be ethical, but it is, the diversity of media that we consume um, and the diversity of roles that we see certain people in is so important. It's important for little girls and little boys and little people. Um, But it's like, I think that film at least encapsulates all of the other wonderful pieces of media that I have seen and consumed that question things. I, like I said, I'm a huge brat, but like I do, it spins off my red flags whenever I see anything or any person who is like, this is the way, this mm-hmm. is the one way. I'm like, well, it's not, nothing is. So I already don't trust right. you. So I like other pieces of media that question things, but don't necessarily give us an answer um, because there aren't always answers uh, and, and things are subjective. So we create our, our own, but we, they can guide us to the water, but they can't show us where it is. Mm. I love disclosure in the context of this conversation that we've been having too, because disclosure actually encourages, if not teaches its viewers, how to be more critical consumers of media. Yeah. Yeah. And honestly, like that, that's the one piece. Cause we're trying to be like, solve the media, but it's like, yeah, if we make people critical consumers, like that's getting more at the core, at the foundation, you're not like, shooting the messenger necessarily but like just even in my experience of like teaching people that are more critical like it's so much easier because they're already questioning things so they're not like buying into things that don't make sense that I have to undo and then like teach them how to be critical consumer if we can do that oh my god I know (laughs) the things we could solve I know I mean we would not have our president for sure right yeah it's just yeah and that's what it is where it's like you don't have to listen to me you don't have to listen to me but like learn how to be a critical consumer it doesn't mean you have to like either of us you can choose to that's fine but like be more choosy of things also I just wanted I'm like in the middle of it but like the antithesis of disclosure kind of is unwell on Netflix and the thing with that that's so beautiful I'm only halfway through it but like you can't defend one of those things without defending them all and most of them are whack a fucking do um and it's just they're so cultish and they're people that are just desperate and will believe in anything and it's like you can't defend ayahuasca without defending using essential oils and fasting to cure cancer Mm. (laughs) so it's like you know you can defend it all you want but they're all there's a common thread Mm. i'll have to check that out that sounds really interesting it's really good (laughs) 
I, I like feel, I feel like I can't say it because so much of my community buys into that mm-hmm. bullshit that they're just going to be like, how dare you? And like, well, but it's like, that's my opinion. Yeah. I mean, I think you can defend essential oils and fasting for curing cancer. There you I go. I mean, some people are going to say that it works. So I think it's like, you can't defend it without defending all the other. Yeah. Things. Well, that's the beauty of it. I'll check it out. That sounds cool. Well, Lola, thank you so much for doing this with me. Yeah. It was lovely to chat with you. Thank you. I'm glad. Share the Load is produced and edited by Stella Hartman. Beginning and ending music is a collaboration between me and my guitar teacher, who goes by Sophia Bolt. The music in the middle is by Tyler Fjeld. The podcast logo is by Candace Ploy Goodman. For contact info for these exceptionally talented people, you can email podcast at sharetheloadinc.com. Mm-hmm.